Okay, welcome back everyone. This is Didactic Mind, episode 73. We're already up to 73 episodes. Now, actually, we're not that far away from 100 podcasts uh, overall. Um, I think we're up to 92 episodes, well, 93, including this one, of both the Didactic Mind and Domain Query series. But uh, today is episode 73, The Good, The Beautiful, and The True. Very warm welcome, as always, to all of my loyal followers on Podbean, all of my loyal listeners who have migrated over from SoundCloud. If you haven't already, uh, please make sure you do. Please make sure you like, comment, share, and subscribe uh, to the podcast itself. Welcome to all of my loyal readers from the website. <clears throat> I'm very pleased to have you here, and I thank you very much for your patronage. Um, very happy Palm Sunday to all of my Christian brothers and sisters around the world. Um, it's important to remember this day as the day of our Lord's triumphal entry into Jerusalem. And you can see that in uh, uh, John chapter 12 and Matthew chapter 21, I think it was. Um, and most assuredly no Bible scholar, but yes, it is Matthew chapter 21. Uh, verses 1 through 11, and uh, John chapter 12, uh, where is it? John chapter 12, verses 12 through 19. These are the verses of uh, our Lord's entry into the great city of kings, of his fathers, of his forefathers, and heralded the fulfillment of a number of prophecies. This is the beginning, of course, of Holy Week. And uh, toward the end of Holy Week, on Friday, April 2nd, we will, of course, celebrate Good Friday. Uh, for us as Christians, it is a day of deep mourning, actually. Uh, boundless mourning, because it is the day on which our Lord met his uh, terrible end. He died. He was hanged on a tree, he was nailed to a tree or a cross, if you will, and uh, he died on that cross in, <clears throat> in, a, in a quite horrible fashion. If you know anything about excruciation, and I've gone over this, I think I went over it um, a year ago in my Easter podcast, and I will probably go over it again on next Sunday during my podcast on that day, uh, you will know something about how horrific a punishment crucifixion really is. And uh, I'll go over it in more detail, but suffice to say that the things that our Lord went through were punishments so severe that Romans themselves refused to allow them to be committed against their own citizens, no matter how heinous the crime, it was, you know, the 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 scourging of our Lord and his excruciation, his his crucifixion, were punishments so dire that Roman full citizens could not, by Roman law, be subjected to them. That's how bad they were. That's what our God went through voluntarily for you and for me. 
That is astonishing. And it's even more astonishing when you consider who he did it for. Again, remember, he died for you and for me. He didn't die for some abstract notion of all of humanity. He died for you and for me. And his death, which we mourn on Good Friday, or, I mean, obviously, if you're not um, an Orthodox Christian, I have no quarrel with my Orthodox brethren, of course. Um, they just celebrate the dates somewhat differently, and that's fine. Um, they adhere to a different calendar, so their idea of uh, when to celebrate certain things is different from ours. They celebrate Christmas in January. Um, we celebrate it on December 25th. Uh, they <clears throat> they don't use a fixed date. They they set their Christmas day exactly nine months to the day of the Feast of the Annunciation. The 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 news that the the Blessed Virgin Mary uh, was pregnant with our Lord uh, and had been impregnated by the Holy Spirit, and that is the day on which um, they celebrate Christmas. They celebrate Easter on a somewhat different day. Uh, they celebrate uh, all of the primary holidays of the Christian calendar on different days. Um, you know, if, if I'm not mistaken, Orthodox Easter is uh, when Orthodox Easter in 2021 is. Uh, oh yeah, it's on May 2nd. So actually, quite a long way off. They're a full month off uh, from 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 us. Um, but, you know, I have no quarrel with them, they have no quarrel with me, and uh, that's really the way it should be. I, I really have no issue uh, with our dear friends from uh, the Eastern Church celebrating on a different day. It really doesn't matter. What matters is our commitment as Christians to all that is good, beautiful, and true. And to our atheist and agnostic friends, my exhortation to them is to turn yourselves toward that which is good, beautiful, and true. See, the thing is, you, you'll only really see this once you accept Christ into your life as, as your Lord and your Savior. It's only then that a great many of the strange mysteries of this world become very clear and easily understandable. It's only then that you understand the nature of sin and suffering. Um, <clears throat> there's a lot to be said on this subject, but my theme for this podcast today is all about turning yourself toward all that is good and wonderful about this world, uh, celebrating all that is truthful, all that is true. Because we live, as I've said many times before, in a world built on lies. We are constantly fed lies by everyone and everything around us. We tell ourselves comforting lies to stop ourselves from confronting the pain and the power of the truth. And stripping away those lies is an extremely painful process, extraordinarily so. 
That is why Christianity is so different from other religions. I've talked about this before. Uh, if you look at Hinduism, uh, Hinduism or any of its various offshoots, its various heresies, uh, Buddhism is a Hindu heresy. Um, Buddhists would probably be quite offended by that, but it's the truth. Um, <clears throat> their, their, uh, their primary figure of uh, veneration, um, the Gautama Buddha, started out as a Hindu and rejected many of its core tenets and created his own religion, or he probably wouldn't even have called it a religion, he, he called it, uh, excuse me, a, a kind of a way of, of viewing the world. But once you um, dig more deeply into Buddhism, you'll find that really it embraces the same core principle, which is that the world around us is an illusion, and that because the world is an illusion, um, we must try to transcend it and um, move beyond it. The illusions of this world uh, can be shed by attaining enlightenment, and the endless cycle of reincarnation uh, can be broken. Now, other than the fact that this endless cycle of reincarnation has some serious logical flaws to it, which I've gone over in a couple of posts in the past. Uh, you can go look at those. Uh, one is called Reincarnation, uh, <laughs> which looks at some of these logical issues. Quite apart from that logical problem of how do you break that cycle and move away from endless reincarnation, and quite apart from the pagan origins of the Buddhist faith and the Hindu faith as well, uh, neither of these faiths does anything, or none of it, none of their offshoots either, do anything to solve the problem of evil. And that is the fundamental guiding problem, uh, which I talked about in my last Domain Query podcast in answer to a reader's question. He asked me why I changed my mind and moved away from atheism into Christianity. And the reason is very simple. It's because of the problem of evil. Well, what is the problem of evil? The problem of evil is that it exists. It's, it's undeniably real. Evil exists. It is material. It is real. It is palpable. And it has a definite and very profound effect upon the reality of our existence. You can't get away from it. You can't run away from the fact that there are some very, very, very evil people in this world. And moreover, these evil people are absolutely and morally convinced that they are righteous. How do you deal with that? How do you deal with people who believe that they have the moral right to rule over you? How do you deal with the fact that there are so many of these people, very rich, very powerful, very wealthy, who believe it is their absolute right to deny you basic sustenance and basic liberties until you conform to their ideals, their ideal, first and foremost, of a perfectible man. 
Well, the answer to that is you have to turn away from the lies and towards, again, that which is good, that which is beautiful, and that which is true. How do you do that? The first step is to understand that any creed or any faith or any idea that says that man can be perfected is itself a lie. There is no way to create the perfect man, the perfectly enlightened man. Can't be done. Here's a very good example. The Dalai Lama uh, is you know, a very wise and kind old man. I mean, nobody denies this. Um, he is supposed to be the living incarnation of the Buddhist god. He is like the 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 as close as you can get to a god in the Buddhist faith, as far as I understand it. I don't understand the full details, but my my understanding of the Dalai Lama's position is that he is the ultimate, or you know, the 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 latest in a long, long line of reincarnations of their god. Okay, what does the Buddhist faith preach? Complete detachment from worldly possessions and worldly concerns. That is their ideal. So when the Dalai Lama talks about freeing Tibet, freeing his people from Han Chinese dictatorship, as he should, I mean, they are his people. The Tibetans are his tribe, his nation. And he has every right to say that he believes that the Tibetan people are sovereign over themselves and do not and should not be subjugated by Han Chinese. Is he really living up to the creed that he espouses? Well, the answer is no, because he is attached to an ideal and an idea, and there's no getting away from that fact. He wants to see his people set free as, again, he should, and that is righteous and good. One of the things that is indeed righteous, good, beautiful, and especially true, is that we all prefer our own kind. Nations uh, exist because people prefer others like themselves. And the existence of nations is a good thing. Once you start, once you discard this belief that man is perfectible and can be perfected, and you accept man for what he is, you know, broken and fallen, then you have moved away from an impossible idealization of mankind and toward the basic reality. In other words, you have moved towards the truth. That is the first and most painful of the steps that you must take. Um, it is, you have to give up this idea that man can be changed into whatever you want him to be. He can't. This is an age-old argument. It's an age-old discussion debate. Um, we like to think of it, I mean, Thomas Sowell talks about it, the, the, the great uh, Dr. Thomas Sowell uh, talks about it in two books, and I've referenced these books before. Uh, a Conflict of Visions and the Vision of the Anointed. A Conflict of Visions is a more academic work. It is uh, a somewhat dry academic discussion of these two visions of mankind. 
set in opposition to each other. One is the very kind of Lockean, Hobbesian view of man as a broken and filthy animal, almost. Not quite. I mean, I'm, I'm putting an awful lot of mustard on it, but that's kind of how it comes across, particularly if you look at uh, Hobbes's view, where he has to have significant restraints placed upon his freedoms and significant restraints placed upon him in order to make life endurable and tolerable for everyone else. Uh, Hobbes, his approach to it, in fact, was to make man so restricted and so restrained that the state had absolute power, which, you know, you could argue was kind of going almost full circle because the thing is, we see, we as humans are naturally prone to seeing things as left or right or uh, up or down, as, as, as black or white, as polar opposites. And the reality is much more complex. Uh, the reality is much more like a, uh, a spectrum bent into, like, it's not even a spectrum, but it's like a, it's a two-dimensional uh, array, and, and you could extend it into three dimensions in, in political terms as well. Um, it's almost like a donut or a torus of ideologies, where there's a small discontinuity at one, you know, at, at one point, and that's all that really separates the very, very far right from the very, very far left. Um, that Taurus, with that, that discontinuity in it, describes fairly well the, the truth of political ideologies. Uh, any attempt to separate out the left from the right has to take into account that there are actually some points, quite a few points, in which, on which the far right and the far left do agree. And one of them is that man can be perfected. They do agree on that. Uh, people like me, who are of the nationalist right, and who believe in basically leaving everyone the hell, pretty much leaving everyone the hell alone, while still respecting the boundaries of nations, of tribes, of gatherings of people, uh, generally avoid that aspect of things completely, simply because we believe that men should be left alone, and nations should be left alone, and empires are a very, very bad idea. But this idea of perfectible versus imperfectible man goes back at least 2,300 years. This is an argument that goes back to Plato versus Aristotle. Plato argued in the Republic, his, in his dialogue, that man needed to be ruled over by wise philosopher kings, uh, disinterested, so wise, so full of uh, sagacious capacity and knowledge that they would never ever be caught unawares and they would always benevolently guide mankind toward its ultimate destiny. Well, the problem with that theory, of course, is that you're rarely going to find philosopher kings up to the task. Um, and you're rarely, if ever, going to find incorruptible men. And it's probably fair to say that there is no such thing as an incorruptible man. Well, I'll modify it. There was one, and we killed him. Um, he died on the cross. He was incorruptible. But that's because, of course, he was also God. He was, he, he was the man who is God. And that's the difference. But 
This notion that you can perfect men is a great and terrible lie. And again, it's older even than Plato versus Aristotle. It goes all the way back to the good book. It goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. And you will be as gods. That's where it comes from. This notion that we can perfect ourselves and attain the same stature as God and become similar to him and rule over ourselves as well as he can. Well, we can't. And that's the problem. The moment that we abandon the notion of God in our lives and the moment that we abandon any belief in God, any belief in a higher power that gives us moral certainty and objective moral law, we abandon any belief in basic humanity. A lot of atheists love to claim that moral law can exist without God. Well, I'd love to see them try, and they have tried. They've tried for the better part of 150 years, longer in fact. Um, if you go back to the French Revolution, it's close to 250 years. And every time they've tried, they failed. Every time they've tried to abandon God, they failed. Now, what happens when you abandon God? Well, you abandon all fear of judgment. And that, too, is a lie that you can get away with doing as you please. It is, and here's the funny thing, it's the central lie of libertarianism, of um, anarcho-capitalism or anarchism. It's the central lie of communism and of socialism. A lot of these isms, which on the surface have nothing to do with one another, fundamentally come down to the same problem. They all abandon objective morality. And the moment you do that, the moment you abandon God as the arbiter of objective morality, then you abandon all pretense of being uh, good, of, being, of, of worshipping the beautiful, of turning yourself towards the true. What happened in every society that abandoned its gods, every single one, turned to violence and barbarism within a few generations? Less, usually, actually. The French Revolution, I mean, ate, uh, ate itself within a few years. Blood flowed in the streets of Paris uh, while the aristocracy lost their heads. Uh, and the entire social order of Europe turned upside down in the space of, what, a few years? The result of the French Revolution was not the freeing of man. It was actually the reimposition of monarchical rule within just, what, 25 years? Space of a single generation, that's it? What happened? I mean, the, the will of the people was so clearly expressed through bloodshed and violence and terror. That's what happened. And the result, inevitably, was people turning back to authority and authoritarianism. What happened in the Soviet Union? They abandoned God. As a result, they starved and killed and shot and uh, sentenced to death tens of millions of their own people throughout the Soviet Union. The, the Holodomor, the Great Hunger, uh, Golodomor, actually, um, as the Russians would call it, 
the great hunger in the Ukraine in the 1930s. You know what happened during the Golodomor? Uh, the, the Ukrainians, I think, call it slightly different. The Ukrainian and Russian are somewhat different languages, but anyway. Um, during the Golodomor, uh, people were so hungry and so desperate, they resorted to cannibalism. There are a number of reports of people resorting to cannibalism, which, by the way, the Western media suppressed. This, again, is a consequence of turning away from the good, the beautiful, and the true. When corruption is unleashed, or when, when a society corrupts itself like that, when it succumbs to lies, when it succumbs to the belief in the perfectibility of man, it, in, inevit it inevitably ends up infecting other societies around it and other people who come to try to learn from that society and because the reality of that society is so different from the ideal that they have come to expect, they close their eyes to the reality and pretend that the ideal is true when it's not. Um, Walter Durante is one of the prime examples of this. This man was, uh, you know, the, the doyen of, of the intellectual circuit in his day. He, he was the, um, he was the 1930s equivalent of, you know, establishment media. He was a New York Times reporter who won a Pulitzer Prize for his reporting on the Soviet Union. Uh, he pretended as though the Soviet Union was a thriving, successful, uh, rich, wealthy, comfortable, happy power. He lied. He lied through his teeth. There were media reports at the time which contradicted everything he said. The New York Times has never, ever admitted that he lied. It has never returned his Pulitzer Prize. And it has never recanted on the reports that he filed, which said that everything's fine, the reports of a famine in Ukraine are greatly exaggerated. He knew. He knew. There are private correspondences and journal entries from Walter Durante proving that he knew it. I mean, let's go look it up. It's very simple. Walter Durante actually knew that there was a famine in the Ukraine, but he lied about it. He absolutely lied about it. So when he said that, uh, you know, everything's fine, everything's good, uh, everything's okay, well, he absolutely lied. And that, again, is the problem. People think that you can get away with lies. And you can for a long period of time. You can get away with them for a very long period. Communism survived for, what, 80 years. But inevitably, lies shatter under their own weight. You, in order for a lie to survive, you have to pile it on top of lots of other lies. Or yeah, rather, excuse me, it's the other way around. You have to pile lies on top of that one. The benefit of pointing yourself to everything that is good, beautiful, and true is that you don't have to do that. When you look at the truth and you point yourself to the truth, no matter how uncomfortable it is, no matter how painful, no matter how miserable, and it is, painful and miserable and uncomfortable. Believe me, it's horrible. When you are told truths about yourself that you don't want to hear, you don't, the last thing you want to do is 
continue listening to somebody telling you what a selfish, miserable, you know, pathetic, weak, spineless idiot you are. I've been in that position. It's horrible. It's absolutely awful. It's even worse when you have to confront your own failures and you have to listen to other people telling you that all the ways in which you fail them and you can't really respond. You can't, you know, you can't defend yourself. You're just like, okay, I just have to sit here and take it. I've been in that position. It's awful. But the benefit of going through that, of not turning away from the truth, is that the moment you simply plot yourself on top of what is true and you say, I'm not going to budge from this, life becomes vastly simpler. By the way, I mean, this is like half an hour into this, this podcast, um, and nothing I have said is in any way different from anything that our beloved and dreaded Supreme Dark Lord, peace be unto him, Vox Day, the most merciless and terrible, uh, has not said already. And I don't claim to be any kind of original thinker, because I'm not. I'm absolutely one of the least original thinkers out there. I just synthesize information from much more intelligent minds and maybe regurgitate it out in ways that hopefully are a little bit easier to understand. I hope. But nothing I've said is any different from what you would get from his dark streams. Um, hopefully I'm a little bit less uh, tendentious in the way that I speak and I have a few less ums and ahs and brain farts than he does. See, the, the problem with Vox Day is it's not a problem exactly. But the issue with him is he's so intelligent, he's you know, 150 IQ, that trying to communicate with us mere mortals who are two or more standard deviations below him in terms of intelligence is extraordinarily difficult. His mind works at a speed that we can't really comprehend. Um, and as such, it's very difficult for us to keep up with him. So he has to, on video, he has to literally slow his thinking down, and you're seeing the effects of that. It's like uh, when you throttle a processor in a computer, when you, when you really throttle it back down, it's capable of much, much more than what you're throwing at it. You're barely tickling it. It's capable of doing so much more. But because it's so throttled back and so scaled down in terms of performance, it starts juddering and jerking. It can't, you know, it can't do what it needs to do. And this becomes problematic for that processor. It becomes uh, problematic to the point where um, the processor itself runs into issues um, that it can't, it can't handle easily. That's exactly what you see with Vox Day. Uh, hopefully with me, that's not so much of a problem. So, at any rate, with respect to pointing yourself to all that is good, beautiful, and true, you don't have to base your life on lies. You just get on with trying to live your life in the direction of that which is true. And this is going to be very costly for you. Um, I wish I could say it wasn't, but it is. Because in a world of lies, when you try to tell the truth, most people don't want to hear it. It's much more comforting to believe in the lies. But this too has consequences. When you turn away from certain truths, that has severe consequences over the long time, over the long term. Look at what happened to the Soviet Union under communism. 
The Russian people had to tell themselves greater and greater and greater lies until the point that they couldn't do it anymore. What was that point? Well, there were a number of them, actually. But one of the things that the Soviets told their people, the Soviet leadership told their people, to be precise, was that the people of the West lived in poverty and misery. And the people of the Soviet Union had it really good. And that the people of the West were a bunch of imperialist, warmongering scumbags. Whereas the Soviet Union was a peaceful, scientifically oriented socialist power that had achieved the answer to world happiness. Well, that became increasingly untenable, particularly in the 1970s, when even though the Soviet Union reached the, the, the height of its power militarily, economically it was totally bankrupt. And over time, as more and more imports and leaks started to come through into the Soviet Union in the early to mid-70s, the Soviets began to realize that they had a serious problem. The people of the Soviet Union, of the Soviet republics, began to realize that their much-vaunted so-called superior scientific socialism was absolutely nothing of the sort, and it didn't work. Now, in order to understand how different that worldview is from a Western point of view, you actually kind of have to go there. I have been to Moscow many times. Um, I have spent a lot of time in Russia. And one of the places that I really love to go to in Moscow is a uh, place called Vedenecha. Uh, it's, it's a little weird to, to say in that, in that way, but Vedenecha is a very specific place. Um, it is called in English the Exhibition of Achievements of National Economy or Vuistovka Dostiženi Narodnova Khozyaistva. Vuistovka Dostiženi Narodnova Khozyaistva. So that place, if you shorten it down into Cyrillic acronym, is VDNHA. Uh, in in English, it's VDNX or VDNH technically, because the Russians don't have a an H exactly. They have a KH sound. That's where the 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 X in Cyrillic in Russian Cyrillic comes from. That is their equivalent of the Greek letter Chi, and it perfor it performs the same function. Uh, chi in Greek is the H sound. In Russian, it's the same thing, but you know, they don't pronounce it that way. So, if you go there to this, it's a gigantic park. It is, it is enormous, and it, it encompasses um, all of these pavilions. It's a it's just a huge, mind-bogglingly big park. Um, each pavilion is a different exhibition, and each. Uh, back in the days of the Soviet Union, each pavilion represented one of the Soviet socialist republics. So Armenia and Azerbaijan and Turkmenistan and, and Uzbekistan and Kyrgyzstan and um, uh, Tajikistan and, and, and Georgia and 
I think the Yugoslavs maybe even had a, a pavilion. I can't remember if the Yugoslavs did, but maybe. Um, each one had a different pavilion there, along with, you know, all these other various pavilions for science and, uh, and nature exhibitions, right? And they would display the great wonders and pride of that particular region. Well, the thing is, that if you go there, you're surrounded by this architecture that is almost deliberately, ridiculously grandiose. And that is a function and a feature of Soviet architecture. You'll see it all over Moscow if you go there. Um, and if you do go there, I mean, I can't recommend it strongly enough. I love Russia. I love the Russian people. I think the Russians are just the, the kindest, warmest, most decent, most amazing people you'll ever meet. Uh, I, I genuinely, I love the Russian people. Um, and that, that's why I am so mortally offended by Western lies about Russia, because I've lived there and I've come to love that country. And it, 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 it offends me on a very personal level to hear all these lies told about them. When you go there, you're going to find this architecture on such a mind-boggling scale all over Moscow. I mean, it, you'll, you'll see it in the, the Seven Sisters of Moscow, which is these, these seven gigantic skyscrapers. Uh, there's one on, uh, on the embankment uh, in Moscow itself. It's actually not far away from Red Square. You can see it from Red Square. It's that bloody enormous. And it's uh, this, this huge skyscraper that used to be how that used to house uh, many of the uh, many of the Soviet elites back in the day. There's another one. Uh, if you go to Moscow State University, uh, Lomonosov um, State University in southwest Moscow. Uh, if you go to Universitet uh, 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 Metro Universitet, and it's uh, on I think on the yellow line. Um, you know, way in the southwest. It's a long way out of Moscow City, but once you get there, I mean, not Moscow City, but central Moscow. Moscow City is a different place. Moscow City is where all the big-ass modern skyscrapers are, and thank God there aren't very many of them, because I don't like modern architecture. Um, but Moscow State University, if you go there and you look at the main building of Lomasonov State University, it is mind-blowing. I mean, it's just like, holy shit, what were they doing? They, they put together something that, you know, makes the pyramids look small by comparison. I'm not joking about it. I've been to the pyramids. I've seen them. And I've seen this, you know, monument to Soviet excess. Well, here's the funny thing. These monuments were deliberate distractions and abstractions designed to distract the people of Russia from the crushing poverty of their daily reality. That's what I mean when I say you have to build lies on top of lies on top of lies. And you have to build them to such a scale sometimes that you can't really understand their purpose. If you look at Moscow State University, today, yes, it's one of the best universities um, in that area of the world. And you know, this is my personal opinion, having spoken to and worked with a number of people who are from Russia. It is one of the best universities around, full stop. Um, they just don't have the funding and the resources that, let's say, a Harvard or a Princeton uh, or a Yale has. 
but especially these days in these sort of social justice infected times, Moscow State University is an amazing institution that produces people who are on par intellectually with the best that America has to offer. Probably better, in fact. Uh, well, no, no, you can't, you can't say that. You can't say probably and then in fact in the same sentence. It doesn't work that way. It's, um, this is my, uh, my grammar Nazi, uh, tendencies, you know, running over time. The, the few things you cannot say, you cannot say, I think, and then in fact in the same sentence. That's stupid. You also can't say probably and in fact in the same sentence. They are mutually exclusive terms. So, as your free grammar lesson of the day. Um, by the way, I run into problems here for that exact reason. I'm in a country that supposedly speaks English, and I'm, I find myself constantly correcting people's English, uh, which I'm sure does not, you know, uh, make me very popular, but that's fine. Uh, I'm not here to be liked. Um, the thing about Moscow State University and other edifices like it is, again, to make people believe that the Soviet Union was large and in charge. When in reality, if you look at the Russian economy, not, not, not the whole Warsaw Pact, but just the Russian economy at the time, the whole of the Russian economy, not all of it, all of it, was worth less than the economy of California. Particularly by the time you get to the blessed reign of St. Reagan Magnus of the Right. By the time you get to Ronald Reagan's tenure as president, blessed be his name, you realize, or intelligence agencies in the West realized, after, you know, he swept out the old, um, uh, realpolitik types and, and staffed some, uh, some decidedly more aggressive warfighters in the CIA and the DNI and, well, did the DNI exist back then? I don't know. But in, okay, into the intelligence apparatus of um, the U.S. government at the time. Once the old guard were cleared out, you know, the, the old types from the Carter era and the, and, the, um, and the Kennedy era who believed in containment and in uh, particularly the Nixon era, so, you know, Kennedy, sort of Eisenhower, Kennedy, Nixon, Carter, all the types who believed in containment or detente or uh, human rights, uh, all that stuff, they were all swept out. And then Bill Casey came in. Bill Casey, you know, the guy who cut his teeth under the original head of the OSS way back in the day. Um, World War II veteran, tough as nails, absolutely hard-nosed, you know, brutal warfighter. I mean, really believed in the concept of, of uh, no quarter given, none received when fighting the enemy. It was only when that happened that the lies of the Soviet Union began to collapse and crumble. Because at long last, here was a group of people dedicated to exposing the truth about communism and about telling people that communism was an epic lie. Reagan received uh, intelligence reports that confirmed pretty much what he had suspected for decades. Not years, decades. All of this is outlined in uh, Peter Schweitzer's superb book, Reagan's War. And in the film version of that book, produced incidentally by Steve Bannon, 
called In the Face of Evil, which is an absolutely amazing movie. I think everybody of the hard right should watch it. Everyone of the traditionalist right should watch it because it explains exactly how St. Reagan of the right fought his war. It explains exactly how that man, almost single-handedly, for the course of 40 years, fought a war to bring down the Soviet Union because he was so convinced that the Soviets were telling lies to their people, and they were, as it happens. He was the one who understood that the Soviet economy was you know, about the size of California's, and that the United States on its own could outproduce the entire Warsaw Pact. He understood that. Almost nobody else did in the political establishment. Everyone thought he was a rube, he was a hick, he was a moron, he was dunce, an amiable dunce. He didn't understand anything about politics, he didn't understand anything about foreign policy. Um, when Reagan came to power, I mean, we saw a direct reflection, you know, 36 years before um, his most illustrious, noble, august, benevolent, and legendary celestial majesty, the god-emperor of mankind, Donaldus Triumphus Magnus Astra, the first of his name, uh, the Lion of Midnight, the Chaddest of Chads, may the Lord bless him and preserve him. Before he came on the scene, 36 years ago, you had his predecessor, his direct spiritual, moral, and political predecessor, St. Reagan of the Right, doing, you know, in the same position. Now, the difference is, at the time, Reagan didn't have to deal with the level of corruption and uh, rage and incoherence um, of the progressive left. And he didn't have to deal with big tech. He didn't have to deal with that level of collusion and corruption in the land, which is why he was able to pull off two massive landslide victories. You know, a 45-state win in his first uh, election, a 49-state win in his second election. And by the way, if you want to know the power of media and the power of lies and the power of inversion, go back and look at old historical footage of presidential elections. Go back. Look on YouTube. It's still up there. YouTube hasn't censored it yet. Go back and look at news coverage of the Republican and Democrat vote counts on election night in 1980 and 1984, and I think 1988 as well. And I think it persisted up until 1992, where the Democrats were red and the Republicans were blue. This is not a lie. Go and look it up. This is the power of mass media today. And again, this comes back to pointing yourself towards all that is good, beautiful, and true. There is a reason why I spit venom whenever I talk about the media. This is why. Because these people lie for a living. And I'm so sick and tired of cooperating with their lies. That's why I've basically cut myself off from them. Yeah, I mean, okay, I read the Daily Mail and the Sun, but I mean, these are tabloids. You can't take half of what they publish particularly seriously. Um, and I refuse to. But these are the people who appoint themselves as arbiters of the truth, quote-unquote the truth, when in reality they tell lies every single day. Uh, if you don't believe me, 
you know, these days they're actually quite open about it. They're, they're quite open about how much they lie and how often they lie and how happy they are to lie. Um, in the wake of the, 20, the, the 2020 election disaster, which we on the right have rightly maintained was stolen and was corrupted, the uh, Time magazine published an article talking about the conspiracy, the real conspiracy that took place um, during up to, you know, leading up to the election. And it absolutely was a conspiracy. And here's the funny thing. They were open about it. They said very plainly, they admitted that a number of technocratic big money donors moved away from the Republican Party and to the Democrat Party because they understood that under Trump, the Republican Party had transformed itself and was moving away from uh, the party of big business that it had had historically been, particularly under um, the post-Reagan um, incarnation, particularly under the Bushes, the, the Doles, uh, the McCains, the Romneys, particularly under that lot. Uh, it had moved away from being this kind of big business-friendly, uh, open borders, cheap labor party uh, of the big cities and had started becoming a party of the working class and of white interests. That's when a lot of these oligarchs and uh, tech oligarchs and big businessmen moved to the Democrats because they saw that within Democrat identity politics, there was a natural home for them. And that is where the conspiracy took place. Again, they're, they're being open about it. You can find this article out there on Time magazine on the internet. It's not difficult. It's right there. They admitted to it. Because that's another characteristic of turning away from the good, the beautiful, and the true. At a certain point, those who tell lies for fun or, you know, for a living, will get to the point where they no longer feel like they have to hide their lies. They don't have to wear a mask any longer. They can come out and say it because that which is untrue has become so widely accepted. These days, the media narrative is that anyone who says the, uh, the 2020 election excuse me, was corrupted is plainly, you know, high out of his gourd, on, you know, whacked out on weed. Well, I'm not. Um, I can just simply see the numbers don't add up at all. I mean, it just doesn't make any sense. The number of statistical anomalies involved is so great that there's just no way that could be random chance. Uh, and, and that's before you get to the, the actual records, the actual evidence of severe corruption in the process. Um, but when you look at lies in that you know, that, that have stacked on top of lies to that level, when they've become so widely accepted and so uh, ingrained that nobody really knows which way is up anymore, then the people stop lying. The people in charge stop lying. They, they stop telling lies. They're just like, yeah, we were lying to you all along. We were, we were misleading you the whole time. But it doesn't matter now. You can't do anything. You can't change it. And that's the point. They want to get to the level where they can simply drop the pretense. Because here's the thing about living according to lies. 
to do so requires um, a level of surrender and no that's that's the wrong way to put it to do so requires a level of uh, cognitive dissonance that eventually becomes unbearable no human mind no matter how willfully self-deluded can stay that way forever it can't you cannot deny basic reality any more than you can deny that 2 plus 2 equals 4 I mean you can try you can try to come up with um, enough reasons not to teach basic mathematics because basic maths is racist and algebra is racist and engineering is racist and it's uh, it's all a function of white privilege well okay you could do that but pretty soon bridges are going to start falling down and planes are going to start falling out of the sky and food isn't going to be shipped to where you need to be sooner or later reality bites back there's a great um there's a great poem on this exact subject rudyard kipling the gods of the copybook headings this is exactly what it talks about you know as i uh, as i uh basically as it, as it goes through the the, the poem itself uh, as I pass through the, uh, as I pass through my incarnations in every age and race, I make my proper prostrations to the gods of the marketplace. Peering through reverent fingers, I watch them flourish and fall, and the gods of the copybook headings, I notice, always outlast them all. We were living in trees when they found us. They taught us each in turn that water would certainly wet us as fire would certainly burn. But we found them lacking in uplift, vision, and breadth of mind. So we left them to teach the gorillas while we followed the march of mankind. With the hopes that our world was built on, they were utterly out of touch. They denied that the moon was Stilton. They denied she was even Dutch. They denied that wishes were horses. They denied that pigs had wings. So we followed the gods of the marketplace who promised these beautiful things. Then we moved the spirit listed. They never altered their pace being neither cloud nor windborne as the gods of the marketplace. But they always caught up with our progress, and presently word would come of a tribe that had been wiped off its ice field or that the lights had gone out in Rome. When the Cambrian measures were forming, they promised perpetual peace, that if we surrendered, uh, that if we laid down our arms, the wars between tribes would cease. But when we disarmed, they sold us and delivered us bound to our foes, and the gods of the copybook headings said, Better the devil you know. On the first Feminian sandstones, we were promised the fuller life. We started by loving our neighbor and ended with loving his wife. Till the women bore no more children and the men lost reason and faith. And the gods of the copybook headings said, The wages of sin is death. In the Carboniferous Epoch, we were promised plenty for all by robbing selected Peter to pay for collective Paul. But though we had plenty of money, there was nothing our money could buy. And the gods of the copybook heading said, if you don't work, you die. Then the gods of the marketplace tumbled, and their smooth-tongued wizards withdrew. And the hearts of the meanest were humbled, and we began to see it was true. That all is not gold that glitters, and two and two make four. And the gods of the copybook headings limped up 
to explain it once more. As it will be in the future, so it was at the birth of man. There are only four things certain since social progress began. That the dog returns to his vomit, and a sow returns to her mire, and the burnt fool's bandaged finger goes wobbling back to the fire. And when all and after and after this is accomplished, and the brave new world begins, I always get that one line wrong, when all men are paid for existing, and no man must pay for his sins, as surely as water shall wet us, as surely as fire shall burn, the gods of the copybook headings with terror and slaughter return. That, my friend, is the ultimate price for refusing to point yourself towards that which is good, beautiful, and true. So in the last few minutes, let me explain how you do it. Well, again, the first step is let go of the illusion of perfectibility. Not going to happen. The best you can do is try to fix or improve what you do wrong, to make amends for what you do wrong, to beg forgiveness for what you do wrong, and to point yourself toward that which is true. And the moment you start doing that, the moment you let go of the comforting lies that surround you, and you stop tolerating lies any longer, you stop, you, you just refuse to have anything to do with them anymore, your life will begin to improve very rapidly. Your, you will, it will be very painful to adjust, and you're going to lose a lot of friends in the process. You're going to lose family members. Uh, I have. Um, it's not going to be fun, but nobody ever said it was. But you will achieve a sense of peace with yourself and with the world around you that you didn't know before. And that's really when the fun stuff starts to happen. Because that's when, when once you've given up this idea that you can perfect yourself in becoming, you know, not, not in the sense of perfecting your craft. That's a good thing. It's good to attempt to perfect your craft and to hone yourself and to push yourself to be better every day. But you can never become a, perf a perfect moral being. It's not going to happen. You can't make anyone else perfect. And you can never make a perfect society. Once you give up that illusion, and you give up this idea that you can get rid of all of society's evils, and you only concentrate on just pointing yourself to that which is true, you're going eventually, in my opinion, to be led back to God and to Christ. And when you get to the end of that journey, and it's going to be a very painful journey, you're going to realize that it was worth it. I'll leave you with um, a thought from the Bible, appropriately enough, because it is still Palm Sunday. And this is uh, from uh, Genesis chapter 50, I think it is. Genesis chapter 50. Genesis chapter 50, verse 20. As this is, you know, Jacob talking to his brothers and basically forgiving them for what they did to him. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear, I will provide for you and for your little ones. And that's the thought I want to leave you with, because we're about out of time. This has been Didactic Mind, episode 73, The Good the beautiful and the true. Please remember to like, share, subscribe, and comment, and I will see you on the next one. 
This is Didact, signing off.